Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me once again. Today, I am joined by the face of the January 6th insurrection himself, Adam, the lectern guy. So you may remember him from pictures of January 6th because he was very um, cheerfully making his way across the Capitol carrying Nancy Pelosi's lectern. Um, and it was a very historic picture. And we really enjoyed talking with him when we had him on TimCast IRL, so I wanted to bring him on my show. Here he is. Welcome, Adam. How have you been lately? Thanks. I've actually been great, um, kind of getting to a space where I'm, I feel more free and more, um, I have more power to speak, you know, things that are on my mind. So doing a lot better, actually. I'm very glad to hear that. What have you been up to lately? Anything you can share with us? Uh, so I am writing a book currently. I'm uh, awesome. a couple hundred pages in now. I just finished uh, chapter 12, I think. And we're discussing whether we're going to release that now or later. Currently, I cannot profit for three and a half more years. So we're debating the idea of, is it about the money or about sharing truth? And mm. I'm, I'm very much on the, on the latter side of that currently. Yeah, that is hard though, because if you pour your, you know, your heart and soul into it, you really kind of want to see some rewards from it. But yes, like you said, it's very important that people know the truth. How do you feel about the way that the January 6th stuff's going? Well, uh, very early on, um, I, I was, I was skeptic about taking sides on it because I did see both things occurring, both violence and nonviolence. Mm. And there were plenty of people who were there just just civilly protesting as is the right to do so. And there were a lot of people who were choosing not to civilly protest. They were choosing a riot. So taking a side on it has always been, it's always been difficult for me because I think that the truth is somewhere in between. Now, right. given, given the current space that we're in, videos being released, um, videos being shared that weren't being shared before selectively, you know, kind of picking and choosing what we're seeing. Um, I can say that a lot of people have been arrested, detained, their lives have been ruined in a way they never should have been. Hmm. Yeah, I completely agree on that. What did you think about those videos when Tucker Carlson was playing them for the first time and you were watching the media freak out over that? Well, as far as Chance is concerned, there was an initial video where he was inside talking to the Capitol Police. This has been going around for almost two and a half years now when the police are telling him you have a right to be here. You have a right to protest, and he's shouting to his, to the crowd behind him, we have to remain peaceful, we have to remain respectful. And, I mean, I don't know the guy. I don't know every footstep he took in the building, but I see the temperament. And I can take that, and there was a moment when I was inside, um, we were at the Senate doors, and the person at the front was shouting at the crowd behind him, we're going to enter, we're going to remain peaceful, we're going to be remain quiet, but when the vote comes, we're going to contest. We're going to say, no, we don't agree with this. And that really was the temperament of the people inside the building. It was not a, a reckless, havoc-seeking crowd that wanted to tie people up and hold people hostage. This was not their motivation. Right. Well, that's a really interesting observation. I feel like that's one of the things that only somebody who is there in person would be able to say. Um, and I think that your insight into that is really valuable. So do you know if, are you going to be able to make any difference to the people who are still imprisoned or is it kind of very much off limits for you? You can't really do anything to help them. Well, I still have about 10 weeks left of probation. Um, when I am cleared of my travel restrictions where I can leave the middle district of Florida again, I do plan a trip to DC to visit the prisoners. Um, I'm in, com I'm in communication with a handful of people who have letter chains going on. They are speaking very fervently about, um, the, the wrongful imprisonment, the violation of their rights. So there will be more effort in that direction when I am completely cleared. That's awesome. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Have you been following Julie Kelly at all? Because she's really been a voice for the people who were imprisoned over January 6th. Uh, the name rings a bell. Maybe catch me up. Yeah. So she's just a reporter who has made it like her personal issue to make sure that these people see some form of justice moving forward. Um, what did you think about Trump's response to the people who were arrested on that day? Do you think he should have done more? Were his hands kind of tied? What are your thoughts on that front? So there is a group of people that said that he should have pardoned everyone across the board. And there is a group of people that said, you know, he shouldn't have pardoned anyone because, you know, justice is seeking out evidence, building a case and having a trial. 
in my belief, a blanket pardon for everyone is not the correct way to do it because the last thing you want to do is pardon people who did hit police officers. You don't want to just say everyone here gets a pardon, you know, my bad guys, let's move on. As, as far as those of us who were nonviolent, those of us who were acting within our rights, I don't also think he could have selectively pardoned us because there was not enough information out there available for him to make a decision to do that. That's good. And an interesting point because there wasn't much time between when this went down and when he ended up leaving office. So there was certainly a restriction. I think you have a point about not having the full information to just be able to do, you know, to say, you know, everyone can leave, everyone's free. But at the same time, do you think that there might be a slight bias in the justice system, at least in DC? <laughs> well, uh, yes, <laughs> to put it yeah. very plainly. <laughs> absolutely. Um, my crime that I was charged with initially was a theft of uh, federal property. And it was a felony because the lecture was valued over $1,000. It was violent entry which would be very difficult to prove because the video is me just walking through open doors mm. and putzing around taking pictures. And the last charge was entering and remaining in a restricted building. That is the one that um, I initially pled guilty to, was entering and remaining in a restricted building. I thought it was a fair charge. As far as sentencing goes, a nonviolent misdemeanor being sent to federal prison for 75 days seems like a bit much to me when we see how other people who have entered multiple capitals have been charged and dealt with in the past and currently. Yeah, so this wouldn't be so stunning if we weren't seeing pretty much the exact same things in multiple sure. different states, right? So we can see a very clear double standard. But I think that most people have moved past the idea that there's going to be one consistent standard. I think most people are coming around to the idea that there's not actually a singular justice system. There is either a two-tiered justice system or functionally no justice system at all. Like if you look at what's happening in Manhattan under Alvin Bragg, there was just a gentleman who defended himself against a robber and he ended up being charged by Alvin Bragg. And this is what he's choosing to do instead of actually prosecuting serious crimes in the state and actually holding criminals accountable. So it's pretty easy to see. I don't know if you remember, there was also the case of the store owner who had an aggressive customer come in and try to get something off him alongside of his girlfriend. Now, when the store owner fought back, Alvin Bragg chose to prosecute him instead of the actual perpetrator of the crime. So I think that we can split hairs about whether he is Soros funded because that seems to be the less boogeyman. We're anti-Semitic if we don't, if we accuse someone of being funded by George Soros, even if that is factually <laughs> provable. And this is what Glenn Kessler tried to do. I don't know if you saw this tweet, but I came across a tweet where Glenn Kessler, fact checker, I think for the Washington Post, was complaining about the trolls on Twitter sending him a community note on one of his tweets. Yes, I did yes. see this. I did see this. two community two. notes back to back. And I was like, that is incredible because he was just out and out lying. And one of his tweets was a complaint about the fact that he was no longer able to get away with it. And what happened with that tweet <laughs> was people coming out and saying, hey, you know what? This is also a lie. So maybe you should stop doing that. But he really did not like being held accountable. And I'm starting to think that's how it's going to be with journalists going forward. Did you see that the, um, I think it was the New York Times. Was it the New York? I can never. New York Times mark. lost their check mark. New York Times lost their check mark. <laughs> and that was so funny to me. And apparently they're not paying to bring it back. Such an interesting thing. Like they're so stubbornly unwilling. Where do you see that going? Is that going to alter our Twitter discourse? Do you think? I think um, I posted this earlier that our echo chambers now have dissonance, and that is how you develop an unbiased opinion is through dissonance. And before all we had was bias pushing in one direction, we saw, you know, the the hot word list that could get you banned or down, you know, down throttled. And it's everything that people want to talk about and discuss. I don't think I see the New York Times eventually, you know, bending the knee, getting their blue check mark because it is a status symbol. And they want to argue it used to be some verified signal. This made you a reputable source. You've been verified. It has always been a status symbol. And I can't see these people not 
coming by and saying, well, I'd like to have my status back, please. And thank you. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think you're entirely correct. And I, I remember that when there was a time that I thought that the blue checks meant something like this is actually <laughs> proving that this was who this person was or whatever, but mm -hmm. that pretty quickly dissipated because it was like, that's not what this is, is it? You get a blue check if they like you that's and they exactly don't if it. you don't. Yeah. The, and the I blue check that. means something. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does mean something. It's just not probably what you thought. So I, I started to wonder about that myself as I got over a hundred thousand um, followers on Twitter and I applied for a blue check. I applied for like the legacy blue check and they're like, oh, no, sorry, we're just not going to do that for you. And I was like, why? Why? Like I, I, I produce a podcast that gets millions and millions of hits every month. And you still think that I'm not an influential voice in what's going on here. And apparently they didn't, which is fine. Um, given all the nonsense that's been given uh, around the blue check stuff lately, I'm kind of glad to not be a blue check. But at the same time, it's like if they were actually giving people these blue checks in accordance with the value they brought to the conversation or the weight that they lent to the conversation, that would be different, but that was when I started to notice that's not at all what's going on. It's just game. So how do you feel about Twitter's running now under Elon Musk? So I have a blue check and I thought about this. I know, I know. I want to see Twitter continue down the path it is going down. It is a great social experiment to see what conversation actually wants to exist and what conversation will thrive. So I, I considered a donation to free speech. Is what I do. And I know it's, if there's, if it's not a profitable company, it will be broken up, sold. People will go somewhere else. So I'm trying to spend my, what is it? Eight bucks a month or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't drink Starbucks. So I get 11, a blue yeah. check instead of coffee. Yeah. 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 Well, no one should drink Starbucks anymore to be fair. <laughs> what you should do is go to public square and try to find a better company who doesn't hate your guts. But yes, it is about the cost of like a Starbucks or a couple lattes. Mm -hmm. um, pardon my cat. He thinks he's the star <laughs> of the show. He's not actually, actually, no podcasting with him is not for the faint of heart. He is a good sport sometimes. <laughs> uh, we'd love but, to have pets. We don't have any. We have a lot of kids. Really? So um, yeah. we, we can't keep anything else alive. That's what we decided. You're down in Florida though. So you have a bunch of like natural pets, right? We do. We have like a 10 foot gator in a pond out front. We have, oh gosh. Um, we have <laughs> animals everywhere. We live on a preserve. So we have um, wild boar that come through. We have oh, a, wow. um, a Florida panther that kind of walks back through as well. We have bald eagles nesting out the way. It's, it's a lot of fun down here. That actually sounds really scary. <laughs> the wild boars are what scare me more than alligators and mm. panthers to a certain extent because I know how crazy the wild boars get. But I'm glad you guys are thriving down there. I'm sure your kids are having an adventurous childhood. How old are your guys now? So I've got a 16-year-old. I have a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. Oh, wow. Yeah, you have. And they're all boys, right? They're all boys. Every oh single gosh, one. Gosh, what yep. chaos. I love that. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, it was good for you. <laughs> it was difficult when they were young, but um, boys, as they get older, they need less and less. They want more and more freedom. And we're happy to let them get on their bikes and explore the neighborhood. That's so cool. And you're, again, really lucky that you live in a place where that's cool. Do you think that more states are going to follow in Florida's footsteps? Or do you think that Florida's kind of scary to them? I'm, I think Florida has made a lot of progress in a lot of good directions. And we can thank DeSantis for that. He has done a spectacular job in Florida. And he had, he had, it's actually, I think the first governor that I voted for ever. So I hadn't voted in the past, but I showed up for primaries and I, I definitely, he definitely got my vote. I do worry um, with him now running for, you know, it's not official yet, but I think he just put something into the Florida Senate about having him being able to run. Uh, while being a active governor for a state, I do worry if he does get the bid and does go to the, you know, to the presidency, what happens to Florida? Yeah, I am concerned about that. Question. Yeah. And he's doing a lot of great things here right now. And how quickly could they all be turned over? I do. I'm <sighs> concerned about that, you know, selfishly, because I live in Florida and I want Florida to be the best states. So I want the best governor. Yeah. Well, we don't live in Florida, but we still look at Florida as like a beacon on the hill. We really want them to continue to thrive because more yes. than anything, I want people to recognize that conservative policies are 
positive for everyone. Yes. Um, they've really led to Florida being a fantastic place to move to. A lot of people moved from New York City. I know they're driving all you guys crazy down there. <laughs> Similar thing happened in Colorado with Californians, but it's a cross you bear for having a reasonable state doing reasonably conservative things. And I wonder, so do you think that here was my thought when I heard that Trump was actually going to be indicted. I was thinking, you know what? I think that is DeSantis' chance to run out the window. I don't think there's any way he gets the nomination now. What do you think about that? And then we'll ask about the general election. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm a skeptic about the indictment. I haven't seen the facts of the case yet. And I know that they're um, possibly going to do a gag order on Trump to not be able to discuss the uh, court case is what I'm reading this morning. I don't think it's a good look to indict front runners. I don't think it's a positive thing to do. I worry. Um, I worry that this is going to be the straw that breaks the the camel's back in our culture. And, but I'm also positive. I um, there is, if someone is guilty of something, they should be indicted like everyone else. I'm I'm very straightforward about that. But. To indict the front runner, it looks messy. Yeah, it does. It does. If 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 he does get indicted, is it going to help him or hurt him? I, I think it remains to be seen. Um, I know he was looking for a uh, for that photo op, you know, where maybe he does get his photo, and that would be great propaganda for his race. It yes. would. But it sure maybe would. they choose not to do the photograph. This is this is a novel scenario. Maybe they don't want to give him any more ammunition. So, yeah, I think that you're right. You have a good point about the indictment. If you did actually commit a crime, nothing should protect you from the actual force of the law. Now, from my understanding with this case, Democrats even are sounding the alarm about how incredibly frail this is. So not only has a statute of limitations run out, they tried yes. to run with it again in 2019 and it was overturned. I remember that uh, the Stormy Daniels allegations were dismissed in court and they were like, okay, we're done with this. But Letitia James went into office and eventually left office with the understanding that she was going to get Trump and she wasn't able to, she just didn't have enough. And for whatever reason, maybe because Alvin Bragg's a little more disagreeable, a little more willing to take risks, he has decided to push through with this. Now, my personal theory is that the Democrats want Trump to run again and even to some degree want him to win again because it turns him into this big boogeyman that they can rally against against everyone on their side on the same page. Now you're welcome to disagree with me if you think they don't want him to win again, but I just remember 2016 through 2020, everything, every headline, everything was about Trump. They tried everything. They threw the books at the wall. They tried impeachment two different <laughs> times. We had a Russia gate. We had this ridiculous raid on Mar-a-Lago and it was all very silly, but at the same time, CNN's ratings were up. All of the ma the media's ratings were through the roof because everyone wanted to know what Donald Trump was up to, for better or for worse. Um, and he ended up slipping into this trap of being like, oh, okay, they do kind of like me. I can tell. I'm going to kind of try to befriend them and see what I can get them to do. Always backfired on him, never worked out in his favor. But do you think the Democrats want him to win or do you think I'm a little bit crazy? I think um, I think that politics is downstream from finance and financial gain. I do. Uh -huh. So I do think that it's always about the money. It is what's, what makes people more profitable. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, do the Democrats want Trump to win? I, I think yes, because there is financial gain. If you look at the amount of news companies that are just dissolving because they lost their funding because they have nothing more to write about. The TDS right. runs very strong. Uh, I don't think in the institutions, I think in the readers. And they yeah. get those clicks, they get those likes. And even from our side, we click and read stories as well because it makes us laugh. And I wonder how much accountability we have for even giving them our views and our likes. Or maybe yeah. the Amish way of just ignoring them and walking away like, oh, we're just not going to even play this game anymore. I wonder yeah, if that would that, be a better strategy. I think you might be 
think you might be right. Um, I do think that the media really does need Trump because as we're seeing right now, CNN is just, even though I know that they went in with the understanding that they were going to kind of try to tone down the rhetoric and try to be a little bit less biased, they still are shedding viewers at an incredible rate. And it's got to be alarming to them. They have to be really concerned about what happens if they continue to have someone in office who's just... They just sign off on. They just don't care what he does. They will not hold him accountable. It makes no difference to them whatsoever. They need someone contentious and interesting to talk about. So I wonder if they actually are fine with this idea of Trump winning again. What do you think about that? Well, I think that as far as strategy goes and as far as um, people being better at talking about things and not so flagrant, DeSantis definitely hands down wins in that realm over Trump every single day of the week. I think it would be more difficult to spin stories, to find flaws in his rhetoric, find flaws in his policy than it would be for Trump. So I do, if we're talking about who would give the media a better opportunity to smear conservatives, it would be Trump every single day of the week. So from that point of view, I could say, yes, the media would definitely would rather see Trump in office than DeSantis. Yeah, so DeSantis's tactic up till now has been to simply ignore the media. And I personally could not be happier because that doesn't give them the ammo that they're looking for. He also doesn't have any of the salacious background that Trump has. There is no paying <laughs> off questionable women. Um, the only thing, most recently they were like, he doesn't respond to emails. And I was like, are you serious right now? This is it. This is what you have on Ron DeSantis. Give me a break. They have nothing. And I think, I think at the end of the day, they are terrified of a Ron DeSantis presidency because they've seen what he's done in Florida and they see that they have nothing, nothing to attack him with. They have absolutely less than nothing. Like, ah, oh, he's a little bit like robotic and he's not super friendly and he's not effusively kind or whatever. And like, okay, he's working. He's getting his job done. What are you complaining about? He doesn't have to be, you know, somebody you'd invite over for dinner. He just needs to make stuff happen for his constituents, right? Absolutely. That's not what the media wants. Yeah. They want someone I, who's going to rile things up. I do think um, DeSantis definitely has a upper hand as far as when it comes to understanding what Trump went through. Trump made a handful of bad hires when he got into office. And I think Trump tried to play the game nicely, right? Maybe if I play the game with them, they'll play back. Maybe all of us really do want to see America succeed. And it's not this system that is us and them. And I think right. DeSantis has an idea that that's exactly what happened. And hopefully if he does get the bid, if he is the next president, he learns from Trump's mistakes and doesn't have the same hiring practices that he did. Yes. Yes. 100%. Well, the other thing that I think it was the, um, the daily beast complaining about this, but they were like, there are no leaks from Ron DeSantis's administration. Like we don't know where to get him because no one's willing to talk about kind of the dirt and dish on the drama. And I was like, it sounds like he's a good boss and he has loyalty from his employees, which good Lord. Can you imagine if the Trump white house had had no leaks? Can you imagine like Omarosa, like any of these people mm -hmm. who were fired or quit, if they had chosen to not be bitter, the media would have been so bored. They would not have been able to get any clicks, likes, or views or anything. Um, but well, it, there is a distinct difference between staffers in DC versus staffers in Florida. That's there's a too. very large yeah. difference. So I think there's a definitely a higher potential for leaks to happen in DC. And I do, do wonder, that, do go we, ahead. Uh, do you think that DeSantis would want to take his Florida staff up with him if he were to be elected on some strange chance? I, I think they should. I think they should. But I also believe that at the level of DC, the ability to blackmail and coerce people into leaking things becomes exponentially higher. And I, I said this um, a few weeks ago, it's people are always corruptible. It is very difficult to find people who live beyond reproach, if not impossible. All of us have internet search histories that we're not proud of. All of us have, you know, skeletons in the closet where we all live mm -hmm. this life. And 
I don't think that anyone is beyond reproach. And I think the, the faster and the higher you move up the, the ladder, the more they will come after you. Yeah. So I don't think anyone's safe from the DC machine. I think you're right. Well, and it always amazed me that no matter how hard they came after Trump, he just did not have a lot <laughs> in the closet. You know, he'd been in New York politics for decades and they're just like, oh, well, he builds buildings like everyone else in New York City does. And I was like, yeah, he lives and works in the New York City environment and he's a New Yorker and I don't know what you want me to say about that. He literally just does what everyone else does. And he said that really interesting thing to Hillary Clinton where she was like, well, you don't pay your taxes. He was like, you haven't fixed this problem because all your friends use this exact same thing. And I do it because I'm smart. And I was just like, hey, you know what? He's right. And mm -hmm. Hillary did not have a comeback to that. And she, she it, it was true. Like they, those loopholes exist for a reason. It's because no one's going to change them because rich and wealthy people, wealthy and powerful people yes. are going to continue to use them and give people certain advantages. All right, Well, I think that's the, okay. I think that is the, that is the, the paramount of, of what power truly is. It's generational wealth. I really yeah. believe this. If the middle class cannot amount enough money to build an empire, they will never be able to make a change. And I mm. think the, the biggest attacks we see is on generational wealth. I do. Um, yes. we, we are trying to build something for our kids, not just in a way that, you know, they have a better education or they have a better moral, you know, surrounding understanding of the world. We want to build something for them that they can continue because we actually believe in what we're doing. Yes, 100%. And I appreciate that for sure. What do you think about the primary election? First of all, do you think Trump's going to get the nomination? Yes. Um, given the steam from the indictment, you think so? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. And, okay. and it's hard. We rely on polls, but I mean, the polls haven't been accurate since, what, 08? Ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really are, are very, very kind of untrustworthy. But do you think that even if Trump gets the nomination, do you think that he wins in the general? Because I'm very concerned. That is, uh, I think that's a multifaceted question. Uh, lots of things there. Um, one, I don't think that he stands a chance of winning the election if we continue to see voting laws in place like we did in 2020. I think that is a very large obstacle. I think a lot of conservatives, the Republican base, are not okay with ballot harvesting. They're not okay with mail-in ballots. You know, they want to right. show up day of to vote. And we have to get over that because votes are what makes people win. So the more right. votes we get, the more chance we have of winning. Of course. As yeah. far as will he win because he is Trump and because he started the insurrection and there's so much, you know, bad news around him. And again, I'm speaking how, you know, it's going to be viewed. Um, also, no. <laughs> that is a, no. that is also a no. Interesting. I'm skeptical. Very interesting. I don't know if they can yeah. win it. I'm concerned as well. And I, I'm really struggling with this because I really, really would like a GOP president for the course of the next four years. And Joe Biden has been just not the best, um, to say the, <laughs> say the least. Um, he's been really frustrating to watch this happen. And it's been stressful. It's been hard as someone who watches politics to watch, this happening to our country, it kind of feels like it's falling apart. And I would really, really value having somebody in office who's going to actually step in and say, all right, this isn't working. We're going to actually try to solve some of this stuff. We're going to hire the right people. We're not going to hire swamp creatures like Lindsey Graham. We're not going to hire people like John Bolton. We're not going to affiliate with these uh, they call DeSantis a rhino and then Trump turns around and hires the guy who used to work with Jeb Bush. And I'm just like, I think you need to find a different plan of attack for DeSantis because I don't think that ordinary people are going to see the way he operates as being a rhino because he's one of the only Republicans out there who's actually making stuff happen. Well, so you have to I, rub elbows on the way up. I mean, you, you cannot get around working with these people. You will always right. have to because the machine is already in place. And I know a lot of people will be upset that I said, I don't think Trump will have a chance of winning. Maybe he does. It's, it's one opinion. I, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to say there is not a single presidency across four years that will save this country. There is not a single one. No one can do it. This is a 20 to 30 year road 
that we are on. If you're truly interested in saving this country, it starts with raising your kids. It starts with sending them into institutions that maybe want to see them be mutilated and everything else. I won't get into that too deeply. Maybe what it actually takes is raising a generation that understands that if we don't fix what has been done in the first place, we're never getting it back. It takes yeah. longer than four years. Yes, that's a great point. And I think that's really where the change is going to come from. This is what I've been saying. I don't think people really want to hear it because they want to believe that you can just go right to the top. You like vote in a federal election and then everything will be fixed. But that's incredibly simplistic thinking. There are, um, there are uh, cogs in motion now. They can't really be changed with just a federal election. There are very serious culture issues that we need to address. So where do you think is a good place to start kind of tweaking the culture? I know it's a huge question. Yeah. Well, I think it's always the ability to access information and access ideas that are, I guess we would call them counterculture now. And I think, I think Twitter is definitely producing that type of environment. I think we have, um, I think that Rumble, you know, was a great source for information that is, that is less ordered than YouTube. I think that we have a lot more voices that are active that we have access to now. And I, I think what it takes is just seeking out those sources in whatever way possible. And then educating your children, educating your neighbors, speaking up, not being silent. Because the biggest victory that the left took from January 6th was silencing the people who had enough motivation and, and desire to see a change happen. People willing to take a stand. Um, yeah, I think you're correct. I think that the, the thing about January 6th was that it gave us the long lasting impression. And I don't know if this is good or bad, but it awakened us to the idea that, um, if we chose to protest, then we were going to face serious consequences, which had a very chilling effect on what should be every American's birthright to get out there and cause trouble within reason. Um, <laughs> within reason. <laughs> right. But, but there, there were people who were like, well, we have to get out there and we have to protest. And I was just like, do you want to end up in a DC jail for two years? Cause I don't mm -hmm. think you do. And that gets back to the whole, the justice system is slanted because we know we watched BLM protesters get bailed out by Kamala Harris herself and we were just like, well, um, that's not right. That's not fair. They're never going to be punished for what they did. And no one's ever going to hold them accountable. But if we try to protest, we know that we will go to jail. We'll get crazy charges that we probably won't be able to defeat. And yes. we'll just have to live with that. So, Well, the, the people that protest on the left are, they believe that giving the government this type of power where they were their preferred you know, in this point of history is a good thing. And any power you give the federal government will be used against you as well on a long enough timeline. And while they celebrate the short-term victory of we didn't get prosecuted the same way, we didn't get sent to prison, the media didn't ruin our lives. If the coin were flipped, you would be saying exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And people need to realize that, yes, it's a two-tier justice system, but it's not right and left. It is us and them. The only reason why J6ers were prosecuted more harshly and more thoroughly by the Department of Justice in the, Fed in the U.S. government is because it was the ivory tower and not a target. Yes, that's a great point, too. And it's interesting to watch the BLM protesters go out there and sack cities and then get off scot-free and realize that it's because it's not because this is people from the lower class standing up against people from the upper class. This is middle to lower class people fighting other middle to lower class people. And it's exactly what the ivory tower wants. So I think that probably one of the biggest things we can teach our kids is that we need to recognize who our actual enemies are. And keep in mind, and this is something I've been arguing about with the feminist conversation, because I keep saying we aren't enemies, okay? The genders are not enemies. What we have here is a, a very, very pervasive, powerful message from people who don't want us 
to have families who don't yes. want the nuclear family. Um, they don't want women to have children. They don't want men to be happy. Um, they want women to be working all the time. They want families to require two different incomes or the income of the government. So that is welfare assistance for a single motherhood. So they've incentivized fathers to just be gone. Yes. So it's, it's, so multifaceted the way that the feminist concept is being unpacked, but they are undermining the most pivotal parts of our culture that we just turn at, turn at each other. And we're like, well, you're the problem. It's you, it's you women. And I see this from men who are understandably disenfranchised. They're like, oh, all modern women are terrible. And then I see this from female anti-feminist commentators. And they're like, yeah, modern women are terrible. You guys are really victimized. And I'm like, you're not helping. Okay. You're not. And this is like the mainstream media getting the likes and clicks and views. They're just saying the things that are going to bring them publicity and intention, not pursuing any actual kind of truth. Because the truth is that men and women need each other. Yes. And we've been lied to about that. And women have been especially susceptible to it because women are more agreeable and they tend to want to go along with the crowd and get everyone to like them. But for whatever reason, we can't understand that someone other than women is causing this problem. There is like an actual battle being waged here. So being, we grew up in a culture where we were told like, you know, being independent is one of the best things you can be. You should be self-sufficient, be able to take care of yourself. And while it's all fine and good, there is nothing wrong with saying, I need help or there are things that I can't do. And I know in our marriage, we, we've been married now for a coming up on 12 years and we, we fulfill each other. We balance each other out. There are things that I'm not great at that she's fantastic at. And there are things that I'm, that I think I'm great at, that I'm not so great at, that she's helped me realize I'm not so great at, and I've gotten better at them. Yeah. It's a good thing. I th and I think too, it's the new, again, the nuclear family. If you talk about how ideas spread long-term over time, it is having children because those children that you raise, they bring those ideas into the future. And I yes. think that's a big reason why they're attacking nuclear family and don't have a bunch of kids, carbon footprints and all that nonsense, you know? Yeah. I think you're spot on there. I think for sure, that's a huge part of the reason they cannot allow people to have children or to be happy with being stay-at-home wives and mothers, or to like really embrace these natural, excuse me, these natural gender roles, because this undermines their authoritarian top-down view for the relationship between the sexes. And it's been interesting. Um, I was mentioning this the other day. Um, the uh, the way that they have made feminism so effective is by saying, you know, they're making all the right arguments. They have a really good PR department, right? Okay. <laughs> so they're basically telling women, oh, we just want you to be independent and empowered. We want you to be able to do whatever you want. You just need to put yourself first and not worry about having a family. You can do that later if you actually want to. Like most people probably won't. But if you do, you can do it later. You can use a surrogate or whatever you need to do. So it's, it's like... They're telling lies every step of the way from the moment a little girl is born. And then women reach like 30 years old, 25 years old, and men are like, what is happening with these women? Well, they're literally just acting out what they've been told their whole lives. And mm -hmm. you can't fix that overnight, unfortunately. It's, it's very difficult to deal with. So what should we well emphasize to get away from that? Well, remember there was that push, I think it was started probably 10 years ago now, where uh, it was kind of that Disney started saying, you know, Prince Charmings aren't real, you know, this is a, this is a thing that doesn't exist. And I think in that moment, what we told women is that you should lower your expectations. And men were happy to oblige. They were happy to say, listen, if I can do less and still get all of the benefits of, of having women, fantastic. Fantastic. I think that men, it's not that they're inherently lazy. I think that they, if they can choose not to work <laughs> something that requires um, emotional energy, they will not. So yeah, by they're only human, right? Yeah, exactly. They're like, okay, I'll take, I'll take the easy way out. It's a little bit easier. It's a little bit less pressure on me. Yeah. And it's so, 
It's so interesting, right? Because that feels good, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we know that what actually makes us really fulfilled is doing those hard things yes. and doing the stuff that we don't actually really want to do when we first get up in the morning, tackling them head on, making them happen. They're going to make our days better. And we're going to go to bed feeling like we fully accomplished something instead of just being like kind of cushioned through the day and going to bed feeling eh, kind of, I got some stuff done and didn't really do anything amazing, whatever. It's not a big <laughs> deal. At least nothing was demanded of me. Well, that's not the way to fulfillment. So hopefully what you guys are teaching your boys is that you need to kind of do hard things in order to get this sense of fulfillment. Yes. Um, I think that's how we change the culture. What do you think? Oh, well, I tell my kids I, on that exact same note, um, we have, again, five kids and braces are really expensive, right? Cars are very expensive. So mm. we don't just give them braces because, you know, everyone needs their teeth fixed there was a point where they weren't brushing and flossing. They weren't investing in their own teeth. And until I saw this investment on a regular basis where I'm not reminding them, hey, did you brush your teeth? Hey, did you floss today? We did not give them braces. My 16-year-old just got braces uh, two months ago because he finally started doing it on his own accord. He invested in himself, and now he has a reward. Same thing with the vehicles. Same thing with the vehicles. If I have to remind you that hard work is directly correlated to reward, you don't deserve the reward. This should be yeah. the intrinsic thing that you're building inside of yourself. So we, um, as far as homework and things like that go, we, we tell them, you know, I'm not going to be a helicopter parent and check every single assignment. I'm going to look at your grades on Friday and determine how your weekend looks. If yeah. I come to Friday, I see an assignment missing. Well, I guess you don't want to phone this weekend. I guess you don't want to go play with your friends this weekend. And it's just follow through. And it's getting to the point now where I don't have to check their work, but once a month. And I may wow. see maybe one assignment missed, but you have to give them the responsibility. You have to make them in charge of their own lives. Because yeah. if they are, they'll actually have reward when they leave the house. I'm not trying to raise children. I'm trying to raise men. Right. Yes. I love that a lot. And I think that people kind of shy away from that because it is hard at first, right? But there is also that element of, oh, wow, I'm actually doing it. You know, I'm taking good care of my teeth. I'm being responsible for my time and my my homework and making sure that everything's good to go. And that feels good. Even if I don't earn a car with it, even if I don't end up getting braces, I know that I'm doing right by my oral health. Like that's actually something that's really important because it affects a lot of other systems. And then, you know, I know that I, when I grow up, I'll be able to save up and buy whatever car I want. That's really cool. That's very liberating. So yeah, I love that. And I think the problem with culture is that it comes down to each individual, right? Do you think there's a blanket way to convince people that we need to change the culture by having children and by training them properly? Is there something really simple that people could do to get that started? I don't think people are happy that don't live in that way. I I do not see these people genuinely happy. Mm. Um, I think pointing that out, I I think unveiling the lie that is if you live in a way that is selfish, right? And this is really what the liberal mindset is. We're talking about where feminism now it is living a selfish lifestyle. You, you are not actually happy. These, uh, Chelsea Handler, who is the one that brags about waking up and smoking pot and then diddling herself and all of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is, you are not a happy person. You truly aren't. There is no, there is no way you can be a happy person. And you meet these people in real life and we're told, you know, well, you know, they're living their, you know, their own truth and they're living their own, you know, their own way. And is it, is it mean? Is it, um, is it wrong? Is it evil to see a person like that and not ask them, Hey, are you actually okay? I think that it is because I have this prevailing, prevailing theory that if you want to actually be kind to someone, you need to tell them the truth. Mm. Um, and this is why when Matt Walsh was telling Dylan Mulvaney, you're not a woman, you're not a girl, you'll never be a woman, you are what you are. Um, and it doesn't matter what you try to do to change your outward appearance, you're not going to change who you actually, like you're, you're the very fabric of who you are. And people were mm. like, people on the right were like, that's mean. And I was like, you know what's actually mean? 
is lying to someone and allowing them to think that they can change their entire person. You can't do that. You have to teach them to be content with who they actually are. And if you want to do that fully, you absolutely have to tell them the truth. So I, I took absolutely no issue with Matt Walsh being so forthright with Dylan Mulvaney. I didn't think it was mean. I've always felt like soft soap is a lot meaner than being kind of blunt with people. You can be pretty direct and get the point mm-hmm. across. Well, it's always underlying issues too. I, when we see these expressions of this um, extreme feminism, right? When we see these uh, people that are mutilating their bodies and, you know, the libertarian part of me says you're an adult, you can do what you want to do, so on and so forth. But do we sit by and allow people to be abused, right? I don't think yeah. so. So why would we sit by and allow people to self-abuse? That's a good question. I think so I think what I'm what we're seeing a lot here especially with like the gun control conversation is that GK Chesterton has this wonderful quote about the people who try to target the symptoms of the issue without targeting the issue itself. And he uses the example of alcoholic drink. And he mm-hmm. said, "We always try to make it into about the drink itself." And I was like, "That's exactly what we're trying to do with guns. It is not." I don't care how many times they try to say it, it's not the guns. The guns are a symptom of a much deeper cultural problem that has to be fixed first. And that's where the conversation needs to take place. We should be able to be libertarian and say you should be able to do whatever you want. And people then should go on to not feel like what they want to do is dice dice themselves up, you know, or try to encourage sure. children to do that. Um, I think it's 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 much deeper than just the tool that's used to enact the bad idea, you know? Well, we see, um, what is it? Crimes of passion. I mean, I think it's statistically, what is it like 90% of all murders are crimes of passion, right? Like most of these, it's, it's very high. We'll have to look yeah. into it and see the actual, but it's very, very high. Very few are these premeditated, I'm going to go do something, right? So I can't look at, if I'm looking at, you know, symptom versus, you know, the reason it happens. It's, it's, it's always, someone always has to get there, right? No one just wakes up and decides to shoot a school up. No one just wakes up and decides to get divorced. It is always a string of events that are put together that encourage someone to take action. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that, and again, we were not having an open discussion about this for a very long time. We were, we were silenced from speaking about these things for fear of losing our jobs. We right. were silenced speaking about these things just, just because we, they would delete us. They would remove some mm-hmm. social media. And now we actually have an opportunity to have real conversations. And I think the reason why it feels so aggressive right now is because we let it fester this long. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think we have a lot of pent up concerns that haven't been heard. And now many people I think are probably really deeply concerned about where we've got to, you know, like there are parents whose children are now in danger of being transitioned behind their backs. They don't know anything about it. Um, This is part of the reason I strongly encourage everyone to either take their children out of public school or to be so incredibly involved. Don't helicopter parent your child, helicopter parent your child's school. Yes, the administration. Right. Hold them accountable for everything they're doing and know everything about what's going on there. Make yourself like a really common uh, appearance at the school. Make sure everybody knows you because at this point in the cultural shift, there's no other way to do it. You have to be breathing down necks and you have to be holding people accountable and you have to be pushing people to do the right thing or face serious consequences. And this isn't a matter of free speech. This is teaching children how to think without introducing them to horrific ideas in the classroom is not asking too much. And the other thing too, just as an aside in the state of Florida, they're being called book banners because they are removing some of these odious books from school libraries And do you want to explain the difference between a book ban and just taking it off the shelves in a school library? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure that my book will not be sold at a lot of locations because it is counter narrative. So I will have real, 
real experience with that in the uh, in the near future. Um, yeah. As far as what goes into schools, I would rather be over careful. I'd rather be overzealous about removing things than keeping things in there. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a real argument to add a book, there is a we should develop a way to discuss that between the parents and the schools. So I right. think being overzealous and removing more things and then let's see what we can reintroduce later is a, is a middle ground for all of us. Yes. There is this idea with, um, you know, they say it's not teaching black history. They say it's not, you know, teaching genders, all these things. And I'm completely fine with teaching black history. I think right. it's very important. I'm very fine with teaching that there are all these different genders. That's completely fine because my kids will be experiencing that in the real world. So I'd rather have them informed than uninformed. And I know that's like a, that's a middle of the road position. What I don't think they should have are books that are illustrated with examples. I mean, we've all seen right. the book, right? Horrible things. Yeah. Yes. And I think there's a good middle ground there. I know there was this, uh, I think it was in Arizona or Nevada where they were trying to ban the Bible because it also had sexually explicit stories on it. Right. Right. This that's is a very, a, that's <laughs> Song of Solomon, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I asked you that because you do have a book coming out. And I know that some of those <laughs> books have been kind of put into holding patterns. No one ever talks about them. But when it comes to trying to remove actual adult explicit material from mm -hmm. school libraries, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is a book ban. no. If you as a parent want your children to be exposed to these books, you can order the book yourself or you can go yes. to the regular adult library and get it from the bookshelf yourself. These yes. books are available. They're not being banned. It's not like they're being burned and you can never get them again. It's not like they're out of print. They just won't be funded by, for example, the state. It would yes. be funded by the government to try to put them in front of kids. So that might be a great way to like push back on this culture stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, the again, the only real argument here is it's kids. It's not adults. Right. It is not consenting adults. These are children. These are children. We cannot treat them the same as adults. So when they come here under the guise of it's a it's a book ban, you know, they're throwing them all away and they're burning them and fascists and Nazi Germany, all this rhetoric – these are children. These are not consenting adults. There are different guidelines, different rules we have to play by. And it's this slippery slope thing that we're on. Um, and it's, I've talked about this several times. I truly believe that this push to sexualize children in school is to, and to have these gender surgeries is a way to say if they can consent with their sexual organs and in the ways of surgery, in the way of puberty blockers and hormone replacement therapy, what then they can, can they consent. consent to? Exactly. Right. exactly. That is the end game for all of this. That's and I don't think we're like. talking about this yet. And this is, this is all we should be talking about. We yeah. are on this road. It is a slippery slope and it will end up there. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree. That's what it looks like to me too. In fact, I started to notice this when I first figured out that, you know, if a, a fully grown adult female chooses to have a drink and then chooses to engage in whatever adult activities she chooses, they don't believe that she has the autonomy to do that. She can then look back at that and say, oh, you know what? I regretted it. Therefore, it was assault. No. First of all, she's still an adult who still made the choice to, for example, become intoxicated mm -hmm. and then made decisions that she ultimately might regret because that's what happens when you're intoxicated. But when it came to children, they're saying things like, you should be able to choose from the time that you're like four or five years old. Sometimes you know before you're even born. Not that they ever even allow unborn children to have any kind of personality or autonomy or even the assumption of humanity. But when it comes to this ideology, well, you can know before you're born that you're going to be, for example, transgendered. Not sure exactly what that would look like, but that's what they say, which is crazy to me. And I was like... What? This is upside down world. This is so backwards, right? Well, we have this look. I mean, liberals, they don't have convictions. They just do what they're told. I don't think they actually believe half of the things that they're, that they're preaching, that they show up to protests. I truly do believe they're told, if I don't fight 
every single battle in the way that my party wants me to fight, then I lose the things that I actually care about. When we talked about, um, I mean, so before the, the gender debate, before the, the trans surgery debate in children, there was the abortion debate, right? Mm -hmm. And it started out was that it was a uh, safe, rare, and legal. This was safe the argument. Yep, yep. Yep. This was the Hard argument play. before. And, you know, I don't like it. I'll just say that really, really loud. I, I don't like abortion at all. I understand that there is a handful of circumstances where I do believe, you know, obviously the life of the mother. We, we, we know these debates, right? right? But it has gone so far from that. Now we're talking about full-term abortions. We're talking, and this, yeah. this is always how it goes. We have to understand that there is, there is not a line in the sand for the left and for the liberals. It is always a pushing. That is what progressivism is. And until we start drawing some hard lines and stop having these, these tolerant conversations where I'm willing to move, but they never are, we're going to go over the cliff. Right. That is, that is coming. Yeah. I think you're totally right about that. And that's kind of what it feels like where we are right now. I feel like we are teetering on the edge of the precipice because for a long time, we chose to be the bigger person. We chose not to push back too hard, chose to be agreeable, chose to say, okay, we'll compromise with just a little bit. And now we are literally to the point where we're like, well, if a baby is born over the course of an abortion that didn't work, do we have an obligation to attempt to save it? States like Montana are saying no. And that, it blows my mind. Like, if a child successfully escapes the abortionist forceps and then, you know, is alive and out and just kind of chilling and needs in need of, you know, extreme need of assistance, they can just choose to ignore it. And this is something that Ron Paul actually talked about. That was one of the things that changed his mind about the topic because he was a libertarian and some libertarians are like, you know what, a woman can do whatever she wants. Doesn't make any difference. I'm like, well, you want to talk about the non-aggression principle, you probably shouldn't be aggressing on someone inside their own home that they didn't even have a say in. Someone who's <laughs> who it's not their fault they exist, where they exist, when they exist. But that's that's, you know, a slightly different topic. But at the same time, did you see I feel like we're winning overall, but just just because we're starting to wrap up a little bit here and I want to mm -hmm. leave people with a bit of silver lining. One of the signs that I think that we're winning is that California is dropping their travel bans. And I don't know if you're familiar with these, but they had banned travel to states that had um, limited or restricted abortions. Um, hmm. I think it was after Roe was overturned in June. And they were just saying, you know what, we're not going to pay for your travel to these states because we don't agree with them on this particular topic. They are dropping those bans because more than half of the states in the U.S. are passing those kinds of restrictions. Yes. And I think that's a win. What do you think? I think it's a great win. I think uh, I think one of the best parts about our country is that we do have all of these independent states that get to run their own experiments, right? I think it's yeah. one of the best things about our country. Right. And I think California is on the precipice of a failed, a failed experiment. I do. We see the mass exodus. We see... Uh, people wanting to secede and join what is a greater Idaho, multiple counties, you know, and yeah. I think it's, look, the white pill part of me says that we are winning, but it's, it's a very large pill, right? Before we get to that, I think that we will have to see a lot more suffering. I do. And I'm not, I'm not trying to black pill people here. Hope, hope is positive. Um, there will have to be more suffering though, because yeah. People are so indoctrinated that they will need true loss. Yes. It's going to take economic collapse. It's going to take grocery stores running out of food. It's going to take gas prices going to $6 a gallon. Those are coming, but I am positive that when real suffering happens because the, the victim mentality that the left lives in on a daily basis, when they actually suffer and actually become victims of their own demise, right? Their own, their own structure, their own laws, their own way they chose to live, then they will wake up. So let the states continue down the path they're going and let's, let's sit back and take the victories we can. But when we do take our victories, when they, when we do see America come back to its moral center, to its, you know, positive cultural, you know, experience, we take them back. We don't, we don't hold it over their heads. We forgive them. We bring them back into the fold. Yeah. 
I think that you're right. And I completely agree with you that I think things are going to get incredibly difficult. So this would be the cycle of hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. So we are just cresting the hill of the weak men creating hard times. And I think what we're facing down is going to leave people with no time to sit and navel gaze and think about their pronouns and all of their various assorted selected genders and how special they are. I think that's coming to an end. And honestly, I couldn't be happier, at least about that part. But you're right that everyone is going to be suffering. It's going to be challenging. We're not going to be the country that we were. So a little while ago, I wrote a piece called um, Saying Goodbye to the American, the Boomer American Dream or something. I forget exactly what I called it. But um, I think that's what we're going to have to do. I think we have to shift our perspective on what we're going to be able to expect. I don't think we're going to be able to get the white picket fence. Now, hopefully we don't have to live in Soviet blocks. That would be <laughs> ideal, but we are not going to be able to keep up with the Joneses. We are going to eat bargain basement food, whatever we can get. And we're not going to have the selection we had. And we're going to be grateful for the things that we do have. And I think that that's going to make us better and stronger people at the end of the day. So that alone makes me very optimistic about the future. The other thing that made me kind of happy when I saw it, that I think it might not make other people so happy. One in four college applicants, I think it was, have chosen to fully avoid states with which they politically disagree. And I thought that was my light bulb. I was like, this is it. There will be no civil war. There will be self-sorting. You will not yes. go to California. They will not go to Florida. And everyone will be happier for it. We will see be... states get deeper red and deeper blue. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do know that people have, you know, they have every right to live near people who agree with them on most things. I think that's a fully fair thing to expect. Um, I don't think they should be forced to live only around people who fully agree with them. There has also been kicked around this idea that if you leave a state like California, like we saw in Colorado, you lose your right to vote for like five years. And I remember thinking, that's a really interesting idea. Now, I personally don't think that everybody should be voting. I have great <laughs> issues with the 19th Amendment and not just because it allows women to vote. I think that a lot of people who are fully disengaged are just like shoved a ballot and said, vote, vote, vote. You have to vote. This is who the media is telling you to vote for. This is who you should vote for. And you're welcome to disagree with me on that. But I think that it's kind of an interesting idea, right? Well, um, uh, should everyone get a chance to vote? I think a chance to vote, yes. A chance to vote, yes. Should everyone be allowed to vote? That's going to be a strong no for me. Mm. I think a chance to vote, I think we articulated down to, do you actually understand the policy that's being discussed? Do you have an idea of who you're actually voting for? Maybe like right. a pretest where you have to answer a handful of questions. And then if you pass the pretest based on, you know, what you articulate, your understanding of policy to be per politician, then you get to vote. But I do think that informed people should have a, maybe their vote should count for more. I don't know. Maybe they get two yeah, votes. Yeah, kind of weighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> maybe not two votes. So maybe like give them more of an impetus. I don't know. I don't know what's best to do there. I do know that you don't get better quality civilizations by encouraging everyone, even people who have absolutely no, you know, they have no skin in the game to vote on things that will affect everyone, especially people who have a lot of skin in the game. But what is the biggest silver lining you would leave people with today, Adam? Um, I would say given my story, what I've gone through, um, the, the smear campaign that's been running for years, the, the way they have tried to suppress anyone who, who stood up that day and protested. I am here. I am speaking. I'm not going away. I think they wanted to try to silence us. They want to continue to try to silence us. And I encourage everyone to take that as, as we are winning. They are on the ropes. They are, they are afraid that our ideas are winning. And I encourage everyone to keep speaking about them around the dinner tables, at your workplace, to your children. Send your children to also spread the ideas. Make them warriors inside of the social constructs that they exist in. 
That is a fantastic strategy. And I do so appreciate that you're speaking up for these people because it's pretty clear to everyone, especially right now, that there is definitely a kind of two-tiered justice system. And the best way to push back on that kind of uh, doesn't really quite make sense, but is to go back to the heart of our culture and say, okay, we're going to create good people who then can move into these positions and change things from the inside out. And that sounds like yes. exactly what you're doing with raising your little army of boys, which I love <laughs> very much. I had a, uh, I had my cousins on my mom's side. They had five boys and then one girl. So huge <laughs> families, majority boys. I love that so much. So good for you. All right, Adam, is there anything you want to plug when we close? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. Um, I am the lectern guy at lectern leader. So, um, most of my, most of my tweets are in satire and in jest. And I love to argue using the leftist ideas. It's one of my favorite things to do. So come follow me. Have a good time. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been wonderful to talk to you once again. All right. And you guys, my dear audience, I will see all of you tomorrow until next time.